This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of crime scenes which some may find distressing, so listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Caprice, and I'm the host of the Unseen podcast. We look at missing person cases, unresolved crimes, and lesser-known stories from around the UK. We delve into cases that do not gain public attention, such as unidentified people and historic cold cases. If you're interested in true crime from the UK, then you might be interested in having a listen to the unseen. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. In the Hertfordshire town of Harpenden, just opposite the common, sits the series of buildings which make up Rothamsted Research, once the Rothamsted Experimental Station. Founded in 1843, it's one of the oldest agricultural research institutions in the world. While for the most part its function is to measure, analyse and provide data which will benefit farmers and agriculture in general, back in February of 1958, Its close proximity to Rosegrove Woods, between the villages of Whitwell and Bendish, just six miles away, meant that for a little while, Rothamsted had a very different use indeed. It was in early February of 1958 that police cast a life-size plaster model of a young woman. She weighed 11 stone 8 pounds, and would have stood 5 feet and 8 inches tall. The police dressed the model in clothing, shoes and spectacles, and for over two weeks it lay on a carpet of fallen leaves and growing flowers in a clearing in Rosegrove Woods, about 300 yards from the nearest cart track. Around the perimeter of the woods, police stood guard day and night, and every day the clearing was visited by botanists from Rothamsted, who examined the rate of plant growth beneath the plaster body, and took soil samples and temperatures to compare with their daily readings from the experimental station. This all added to the decomposing leaves, moss, soil and flowers that they had already had to analyse to try to determine how long a body could have lain in those woods during the month of January 1958. The weather had been relatively mild that winter, with a cold snap at the start of the month, but by the last week of January it had become unseasonably warm. So when the body of 17-year-old Anne-Theresa Noblet who by that point had been missing for 32 days, was discovered lying neatly in the little clearing in Rose Grove, known locally as Young's Woods. It was initially assumed, based on the rate of her decomposition, that she had not been dead for long. Though soon, renowned pathologist Dr Francis Camps would discover something that would send the whole investigation into disarray. Because based on her stomach contents, Anne had died on the day of her disappearance, December the 30th, 1957, and somehow, 32 days later, through an unseasonably warm January, her body had remained relatively well-preserved, with a core temperature lower than that of the air and soil around her. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast.
On the night before her murder, unaware of what was to happen, Anne spent the evening with her parents Ina and Thomas Noblet. Speaking in April at the inquest into his daughter's death, Thomas, a wealthy motorcycle headgear manufacturer and poultry farmer, told the courtroom that on the evening of the 29th she had been in good health. A student at Watford Technical College, she was a happy girl who, when she retired to bed that evening at around 11pm, appeared to have no cares whatsoever. The next day, December the 30th, she ate a meal and left their home at Heath Cottages, Marshall's Heath Lane in Wheat Hampstead, at around 2.30, with no more than 30 shillings, or about £1.50 in her pocket, to catch a bus to nearby Harpenden, a ten-minute drive away. She was wearing semi-rimless spectacles with dark fly-off top frames, a charcoal grey reversible raglan coat over a grey flannel skirt, a pale blue knitted twin set, and carried a headscarf. Her handbag and shoes were tan in colour, and her underwear was marked Noblet 156, a relic of her time at a Swiss finishing school, which she'd completed the previous summer. At 4.10pm, Holding a letter from a friend in Leicester and a bag of mushrooms, she met Annette Solway in Harpenden, and together the two made their way to Lord's Hall to attend their regular rock and roll dance classes. It was raining, and instead of waiting for their 4.30 class to begin, they also attended the end of the previous session, dancing together for most of the time and finishing at 5.30. Anne, Annette and two other girls left the hall and walked together towards Anne's bus stop on Station Road. As they were about to cross the road, they noticed Anne's bus, the 391, had already left, and turning to her friends, she said, As I've missed that, I might as well walk along to Church Green with you and catch the bus there. They walked together, and Anne left them opposite to Church Green, though no one saw her cross the main road to the bus stop. As she went, she turned to her friend Hazel and said, I'll see you on Friday. Anne was a conscientious girl, so shortly after she left her friends, she made a phone call to her mother to tell her that she had missed the bus and would catch the next, and that she was bringing the bag of mushrooms for tea. It's believed that Anne caught the 541 bus from Church Green to Cherry Tree Public House, although as the bus was running behind schedule, this would later lead to confusion, as many passengers believe they were on the 551. As such, it's difficult to ascertain for certain whether Anne did manage to catch the bus, but it seems likely because one of her father's employees, Miss Shirley Edwards, swore that she saw Anne at around 6.03 that evening as she drove home on her scooter from the poultry farm where she worked. There are a couple of small discrepancies in reported versions of Shirley's story. In the days after Anne's disappearance, Shirley told the Harpenden Free Press that... I saw her outside the Cherry Tree Public House on Luton Road. She was at the bus stop, but whether she was getting on or off a bus, I don't know. At the inquest, though, her story changed a little, and she said she went straight down Marshall's Heath Lane, and then turned left. As she slowly turned at the junction, she saw Miss Noblet, who looked as if she was still slowly strolling up the road towards home herself. Shirley told the courtroom that... Although I always leave work at around six o'clock, I had not seen her before that time and place. She said hello, and I replied hello. I'm quite certain it was her. 
She goes on to say that she noticed as she continued on her scooter around the corner that a bus was just pulling away from the stop, though she did not see Anne alight. They're very small differences. Anne at the bus stop or Anne at the corner about to walk up the lane. And if Shirley's sighting is correct, then whenever she saw her, this was the last time that Anne Noblet would be seen alive. And somewhere, on the lonely stretch of Marshall's Heath Lane, between the cherry tree and Heath Cottages, she disappeared, only to be found strangled 32 days later, her body left in that small clearing in Rosegrove Woods. On a Saturday in early June, Gemma and I drive again to Hertfordshire. I've created a map for us with five points marked, but before we visit any of them, we head for Harpenden Library, where copies of the Free Press are kept on microfilm. It's a familiar situation that we find ourselves in. There's one machine. It's old, and it's dodgy. In order to print anything, we have to turn the whole unit on and off again after every page. And even then, there's no guarantee of success. As the third sheet in a row fails to print more than the bottom eighth of an article, the poor woman behind the counter becomes horrified with the idea that we've driven nearly two hours for this research. Eventually we succeed, but it takes having to align everything upside down until the reader becomes confused and prints out the information we need. Relieved to be done with research, We walk out of the library into the sunshine to find crowds lining the main road. It's carnival day in Harpenden, and as we join the gathered spectators, we watch a large red Chinese dragon bob past with a vintage car behind, and a short while later a team of young Morris dancers stomping and clinking the bells attached to their feet. It's been a long time since either of us have seen a carnival, and it lends a surreal feel to our journey. As we get back in Gemma's van and head out to find Lord's Hall, where Anne attended that final dance lesson, I say to Gemma, what we need is rock and roll. And as if by magic, she produces a CD of exactly that. 50s rock and roll classics ripped from their original vinyls. Despite the upbeat music, as we drive the road between Harpenden and Wheathampstead, my mood becomes sombre. And by the time we reach the Cherry Tree Public House bus stop, where Anne allegedly alighted that December day in 1957, I've fallen silent. The music plays on, and I watch the hedgerows go past the window. The road has houses clustered at the start, and then there's nothing for a half a mile or so, except trees and low banks. And everything is very green in the sunlight. But in the dark on a winter's evening, the bare branches and empty spaces would feel foreboding with no lights guiding your path. If Anne did disappear on Marshall's Heath Lane, it's as good a place as any for an abduction as I've ever come across. At the end of the road, we swing the van around and head back into Wheathampstead, to St Helen's Church, where Anne's grave is located. Her funeral was held in that church, in front of almost 300 people. Men and women wept and the village shops closed to mark the occasion. We know what the grave looks like, 
because there's been a nighttime video from a team of paranormal investigators on YouTube which show the stone itself, but none of the surroundings. Even with a general idea, though, it takes us a good 20 minutes to find her. The church is set in one of those beautiful, old, low-walled English village graveyards that sit on a slight slope. And next to the very back wall is a flat, rectangular grave with a stone inscription. In memory of Anne Noblet, who died 30th of December 1957, aged 17. Thomas John Noblet, who died 25th of November 1985, aged 75 years. I stand there quietly at their graveside and think towards my next stop, the woods of Rose Grove and the clearing where her body was left. It didn't take long, on the evening of December the 30th, for Anne's parents to begin to be worried when she didn't arrive home on the bus. Thomas Noblet said that he returned to Heath Cottages that evening at around 6.40, and his wife told him that Anne would be home soon. By 7 o'clock they were worried, and by 9pm, when she still hadn't arrived back, a concerned Thomas called the police and mobilised a search party. The 32-day hunt that followed Anne's disappearance was extensive and thorough. Gravel pits were searched, a rubbish dump in Luton was thoroughly sifted, and the countryside was combed by volunteers, police and their dogs. The River Lee was searched and dragged between the villages of Batford and Wheathampstead, and pools were drained. Among the civilians taking part in the search were numerous men who worked at Thomas Noblet's company Helmets Limited. One of the men was quoted in the free press as saying, Mr Noblet was terribly upset and asked us if we would mind lending a hand. We all willingly volunteered to do so. However, all was to no avail, and by January the 23rd of 1958, the papers announced that the search for Anne was being scaled back, with a police spokesperson saying, We are as certain as is humanly possible that the girl is not in this area. Despite the thoroughness of the searches, they did not stretch as far as the woods near Whitwell, and it was by pure chance that her body was found at all. It happened at around 4pm on the afternoon of January the 31st. Leading aircraftman, 21-year-old Hugh Simmons, his 14-year-old brother Brian, and their dog Rip were out for a walk. Hugh told papers... We went down a lane, which is a shortcut between Whitwell and the village of Bendish. We'd got about half a mile down the lane when Rip ran into a wood. I went in after him, and after I had gone about a hundred yards, I saw a girl's body in a clearing, on its back, fully clothed. I did not go any nearer than several yards, but I could see it was a woman. I ran back to Brian, and we both raced home, and I telephoned the police. When Detective Superintendent Leonard Elwell, the man in charge of the investigation, and Richard Lewis of Scotland Yard arrived at the clearing, they were faced with a strange sight. Superintendent Lewis later told the inquest, The body was 75 yards into the woods from the nearest field, and 300 yards from the nearest cart track. 
one could not imagine a vehicle getting down there with ease. The body was fully dressed and on its back. There were some belongings nearby, and her glasses were on, although not properly positioned. While he doesn't state it, elsewhere we are told that the soles of her shoes were clean, and we know that found scattered around Anne's body were coins, totalling almost 30 shillings. Although she looked fully dressed, further investigation revealed that she had been undressed and then redressed, as her undergarments were incorrectly buttoned, and pathologist Francis Camps found evidence that there had been what he termed sexual interference. Because of the well-preserved state of her body, police began their investigation with an unusual assumption that she might have been kept in a refrigerator or deep freeze unit and placed in the woods only a short while before her discovery, perhaps as recently as the previous day, when a thick fog had blanketed the area. This assumption has led to Anne's killing being dubbed the Deep Freeze Murder, a moniker that even now she cannot kick. But is it accurate? Was Anne kept frozen for weeks after her death, only to be carried along tracks and through woodland to a clearing and left neatly to defrost? Or was it a red herring, an assumption that for months stumped the police and dictated the direction of their investigation? seven miles from Wheathampstead to Rosegrove Woods, and most of those miles are little villages and winding country lanes. Despite the sat-nav, Gemma and I struggle to find the place we've pinpointed, based on black and white photographs of gathered policemen in February of 1958. We park at the start of a mud track, which the sign assures us we can drive down, but even in the 21st century, we don't fancy it. There's a water tower on the corner, which reminds me of a news article we'd just found about a sighting made by Mr Joel Spaulding, who said on December the 31st, 1957, as his bus went around the bend near the water tower, he saw a large two-coloured car backing out of the lane. It's amazing to me how little some of the landscape seems to have changed in the past 60 years. Our journey down the track where Hugh, Brian and the dog Rip walked is warm, and I get stung by nettles, so by the time we reach the cool of the woods, we're grateful to be off of the path, though not for long. From where we are, there's no easy way through, except to duck and skirt the low branches as we kick up piles of fallen leaves. I try to imagine carrying a body of someone who weighs over 11 stone, even without freezing through these woods, and I find it difficult to, if you drove up the track, it would still leave you a fair distance from where she was left. So the question arises, did he have help? In 1958, for a while, the police seemed to think so. An article in a national newspaper asked, how did he get the body to Rose Woods? Anne weighed 11 stone 8 pounds. A vehicle, almost certainly not a car for the body was rigid, must have been used. The killer must have driven the vehicle as near as the woods as possible, but then the body would have to be carried. 
Because of her weight, it is likely that two men would be needed to carry her through the woods. It would appear that a tractor was used, possibly by someone whose presence in the area would be accepted as normal. It's difficult when researching a case without the help of police records to ascertain what information is true and what is false. When I started looking into it, all I knew was that Anne's body had been frozen. But the more I hunt, the less sure I am that that's true. I'm beginning to think that it might just be the most sensational way to frame a story. Because when I try to look for the most credible reports, repeated information or articles on the inquest, for example, I find that it's not actually clear what happened to Anne or what the police believe. One inquest article states explicitly that she was not kept in deep freeze. Another says that there was no mention of the deep freeze theory. And a third says that she might briefly have been refrigerated. None of them provide details. It seems as if, based on the pathologist Frances Camp's initial assessment of the body, police worked on the assumption that she had been frozen But by the time of the inquest, having searched countless workplaces associated with freezing or refrigeration on an industrial scale, they seem to have quietened that theory down. In his book Camps on Crime, Francis Camp says, Criminology must be a subject of integrity. I have no shame in admitting mistakes, for this is the honourable approach and allows the science to gain greater strength. Perhaps by the time of the inquest, they believed that Dr. Camps had been mistaken. Perhaps this was based on botanist reports of the ground temperature and plant growth in the woods. Perhaps a man could have moved her body on his own if her body was not frozen. The more I research, the less sure I am that I can trust anything I thought I knew about the case of Anne Noblet. We are now coming to the end of my look into the deep freeze murder, and it's frustrating to finish with more questions than I began with, because now this isn't just about who killed Anne Noblet, but it's also about how did he do it, and where did he do it. It's not even certain that she did get off of her bus at Cherry Tree Public House. There's just the one sighting from Shirley Edwards, and perhaps a second if you count a man who saw some taillights on Marshall's Heath Lane just past six o'clock that evening. There aren't even really any clear suspects, though a man did stand out at the time. He was called Walter Edward Nunn, and initially was interviewed as part of the routine investigation, but later he began to make crank phone calls to the police, Anne's mother, her aunt Enid, and Hugh Simmons, who found the body. He made over 35 calls in total from a phone box in Luton, and when caught... He said he was in a temper over the interview and thought it was sourced by the police. An article quotes him as saying, They wasted my time, so I thought I would waste their time. I suppose I did it because I have a craze for going into telephone boxes. A medical officer at Bedford Prison told the court that while none was not an epileptic, he did have hysterical fits. His parents had been told not to chastise the boy and as a result he had become uncontrollable. 
One last unusual note on Nunn, who was convicted for six months for the phone calls and cleared of all other involvement in Anne's case, is that from 1950, he spent time in Borstal for causing poison to be put in his brother's coffee. There's one other person who I wish to touch upon, and that is a Belgian man named Charles Brakeman. In June of 1961, Charles, a refrigeration engineer, turned himself involuntarily to a Brussels police station after a woman in South End had attended a station there and given evidence against him. He was released, and speaking to the Daily Mirror, he said, Detectives questioned me the whole time. They asked me about the Anne Noblet murder in 1957, but I told them I could not help them at all. I don't know why anybody should think that I know anything about the murder. I didn't do it. And so for now, this is where my research ends. Without the case notes, and with only articles looking to sensationalise the death of a young girl, it's difficult to know what actually occurred on the day that Anne was murdered. And all I can say right now is that on December the 30th, 1957, somewhere between Church Green in Harpenden and Rosegrove Woods in Whitwell, she was taken and strangled, and that sometime in the month that followed, her body was somehow left in a little clearing, neatly dressed, her spectacles in place, and coins strewn around her body. If you'd like to find out more about Anne Noblet, then there are a couple of other podcasts you can check out. The first is The Unseen, whose promo you heard at the top of the show. Caprice covers a range of unsolved UK cases, and I'd highly recommend having a listen. The second is Still at Large by Desmond J. Brambley, and you can find both on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Before I go... I'd like to take a minute to extend my gratitude to my latest patron, Rob Bonza-Wilton. If you're interested in joining Rob and supporting the show, then you can find the link to Patreon in the description box below, as well as all my other contact details. Giving on Patreon means that I can begin to fund research both online and in person, and I hope that the addition of reports from the scenes of these crimes and the extra information that travelling to local archives provides is worth the money you'll spend. Outlines will be taking a month off of the air from now, so that I can research the second part of season two, which will be taking place in a new county. If you're enjoying the episode so far, then please remember to rate, review and recommend on social media, or in person. Every time you share the show, it helps to raise its profile, and brings new listeners and exposure to the cases I cover. Even if you're just listening, though, thank you so much for choosing to spend your time on the Outlines podcast. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter, with additional input by Gemma Frost. The music was written by Elias Hardy. <laughs>